Sing Glory! I only knew Kate from having perused her Instagram feed with daily life inspirations and her ceramic creations took center stage. But on the other side of the spectrum, she's also a practicing psychotherapist. I'm extremely nosy, and maybe Gus and Glory simply came to be in order to facilitate instances such as these, but I had to know her story. It was her visual perspective which drew me in, but now I've come to know her as this woman who, from one angle, may appear the psychotherapist newly introduced to shamanism, but from another, a ceramist pulling from therapeutic approaches in order to relay her visuals and creations to the world. In this episode, Kate allows for a space in which she blurs the lines between the ups and downs of her life in order to underline what she's gained and come to learn. With the ever-present theme of staying true to oneself, we discuss certain aspects of the mental health space and how to potentially recognize your spirit animal. This is Chic Freud with Kate Rosenberg. A quick heads up, we're dealing with an overseas conversation here, so the audio may reflect this. Coming to you from Los Angeles, California, in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. If you could just provide us a little intro on yourself, it could be short, long, quirky, however you want it. Yeah, I thought about this for a minute, and I mean, I think my answer is that I'm still always trying to figure myself out. Um, I think that's part of the reason I can kind of recognize parts of myself in the work that I do, and it's like always a reflection of myself, but in reality, I don't know if I'm really going to know until I'm like 90 years old. And have reflection. <laughs> yeah, to be honest. And when I first reached out, you mentioned your practice. And pulling from that and the different forms of therapy that you do, I'd like to know what your motivation was in choosing to pursue this line of work. And if you could give us a little background on what your journey has been like up until this point. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you and your own art making process, but I've been making art ever since I was a little kid. And it was something that I did for myself, you know, when my parents were arguing or when there was conflict in the house, I would kind of just pull myself in a space and like obsessively glue beads onto a shoebox <laughs> or jewelry. And so as I grew older, I learned that that was my own form of healing. Um, I'm just going to try to try to sum up the grander theme. But in undergrad, I studied studio art, and I specialized in filmmaking. <clears throat> I had a brief stint in advertising, working as a commercial producer. Then after that, I went to NYU Film Grad School in Singapore um, for a semester. And pretty soon there, I learned that they didn't, they didn't use art making as a form of healing. It was more competitive. And I prematurely left the program. And it was the middle of the recession at the time. And so jobs were hard to come by. And so I did a lot of soul searching and I was like, what do I want to do? Like, I don't want to be part of this gallery scene. I don't want to be in the competitive world of film. And I came across a friend who was working in a Waldorf school. I don't know if you've heard of that yeah. schooling before. Um, so I did work there. And while I was there, I um, 
had a tumor. A doctor found a tumor on my ovary. Oh my. And I had a cancer. So I had a really awful hospitalization. But through that experience, you know, in the hospital, I learned that being there was a setting I could, I could handle, I could tolerate. And um, I kind of started to consider healing more. Um, and I applied to Pratt. I don't know if you know of Pratt. Yeah. It's a, an art school in New York. And they have an art therapy program that was developed in the 70s. And it's very experiential and alternative. Yeah, I, I got into therapy, I suppose, through that journey, through that hospitalization, through my art making. And now I'm pretty much strictly doing art for myself and then therapy with others. Well. I'm sorry to hear that you had to go through such an experience to get to this point. But thank you for sharing. Um, yeah. Yeah, and quite recently, you were introduced to shamanism, and I'd like to know what led to this. Mm. Um, I suppose I've always been intrigued by, like, mysticism and the occult. And, you know, even... Young and Freud, you know, they use like tarot archetypes and whatnot. So I feel like there's, it has a place in therapy to some extent. But I think my biggest pull towards shamanism was the use of nature for healing and ritual. I love, I love rituals and I find them to be like uh, kind of empowering. Yeah, from my perspective, I've been to a therapist a few times, and it is quite a stark contrast to what I imagine shamanism is, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on how you would go further in coupling this with your current practice, and if, if it has a space in the mental health world as well. Yeah, um, I mean, oftentimes with my clients... I'm really into spirit animals um, in shamanism or through the women I worked under who studied under Peruvian shamanists. Um, there's something called, you have like a spirit animal that lasts with you throughout your life. I love that. And then you have ally, <laughs> you have ally animals that come in and out of your life that kind of give you messages. So I'm always telling my clients to be aware of the animals that they see and the animals that they identify with and the animals that come into their dreams. And then when you explore the behaviors of those animals, I guess it gives you some perspective into how you might look at things differently. For example, if an if a eagle or a bird comes into someone's life, you can envision a bird kind of flying above the world and observing things. And then if they see their prey, or let's say it's a hawk or something, then swooping down and, like, taking the kill. And I think for a client, if that's coming into their life, they can use that as an example of watching and overseeing very carefully what's happening around them, taking their time with it, and then when they're ready, going in and taking action. So that does that make sense? Yeah, it's wildly different from um, the uh, sessions I've had before with therapists, and I would I would definitely book you over the ones I've been to prior. 
I'm curious about your experience, but I don't want to put you in the, the patient role right now. Oh, no, it's fine. It was just bouts of, um, I couldn't find the root problem of panic attacks. And I, I don't know, I, I read Linda Kohanoff. She does, um, I think she's got two books out, and it's very much about how horses can be very therapeutic, and they're your mirror. And so I was reading this book after the passing of my father, and... I was taking the time to really process everything and I just could not find the root problem of all these panic attacks. And I went to a number of therapists and we just talked to all and they didn't help either. And after a year, almost exactly, it just vanished. And I still don't know what it was to this day. What do you wish they would have done differently? Or like, what do you think would have been more helpful to you? Um, I felt they were very textbook standard. It was just going back to, we know that your dad passed and that, sh that has to be the problem because the rest, everything else in your life is pretty perfect. Um, mm -hmm. and I felt like we couldn't really get further than that. Like I have, no I had no idea how to get to the problem myself and they didn't really have any approaches to dig deeper. And it's like, oh, if it's not the death of your father, then... We don't know, really. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like it's interesting. Some of my closest friends live in Europe, and it seems there's definitely a stigma attached to therapy there, or there isn't as much of an acceptance of it for some reason. Oh, yeah. Um, um, people don't express themselves as much, and therapy is kept for people who have, like, you're not crazy. Why are you going to go to therapist? Right, right that you're, it's you're crazy. There's yeah. something wrong with you. It's a labeling of crazy as and they're scared to, of that. Yeah, as opposed to it just being, you know, maintenance of the self and um, understanding yourself better. Yeah. And I mean, do you think it's changing at all? Or? Um, I think so. I think that Europe very much takes after the U.S. in that aspect. Where therapy is concerned, I do feel that it's becoming more accepted and people are realizing that, oh, I need actually to process a lot of my daily life and life in general. And yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting too, because some of the, I mean, like the newer psych psychological theorists are from the US, but you know, the Mo Freud and Lacan and I'm not sure where Young, I think Young was from Europe, um, they're from Europe, so. It seems that a lot came from Europe and it's like further matured in the U.S. and like mm. Europe has very much stayed the same. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that California in general has all, I mean, I lived in New York for 11 years, um. But I think that California has always had that reputation of being the Wild West and always being a place of, of change and, and newness. Yeah. Um, for some reason, even more so, like, the art world seems to be really flourishing here. I mean, and therapy in California is, like, you know, everybody goes therapy here. It's pretty saturated. I'll just... Veer back on track a little bit. <laughs> and thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you for asking and putting me in the spot. That's never happened yeah. before. <laughs>
I'm used to being on the other side, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's against this background of yours that I'd like to know your perspective of following your gut. And is this an approach you subscribe to and how you implement it on the daily? Um, I mean, going back to shamanistic practices, um, so the gut represents the unconscious. And in terms, you know, we were just talking about animal symbolism and the snake also represents the unconscious. Uh, So I think your gut is your shadow self kind of and it's a self that people are really afraid to embrace and see um it's easy to run away from so you know in terms of myself i think it's really important for me to like see what's happening in my unconscious and like meditate on the unconscious and look at my dream and see my dark side um and I see that as, as the gut, like integrating the darkness with the lightness. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. I've never heard an answer like that before. I love how you brought the darkness in. A lot of people tend to focus on the good, and they always want to light and fluffy. Mm. Mm. Well. I don't know if you, I don't know if this is a European problem, but certainly in the U.S., a lot of people have um, digestive issues. Like there's irritable bowel syndrome, um, Crohn's disease, and I do think that part of it is psychosomatic, like related to the head, and like not really. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's related to not being able to embrace the, the dark side too. Um, yeah, the, the gut is, is digestion. And when we can really like feel our feelings, I think we can also have a, a more normal release, so to speak. Yeah. Cause it has been described as the second brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, this is going like to the next level. I haven't had a guest yet. Who's taken it this far. Ah! I'm loving this so much. Well, you have some really good. Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> Um, and looking at these principles that you practice with your patients, what core factors would you say contribute to a person's strong belief in themselves? Because looking back at, say, psychoanalysis and what people carry with them from childhood or the way that we suffer from immediate thoughts, what would you say just, like, fundamentally contributes to... A person strong with themselves. I mean, like again, understanding their strengths and weaknesses. Um, unfortunately, I do. I, I don't know if you know much about attachment theory. It's a part of psychodynamics, psychoanalysis. Um, it's all about basically a child's relationship to the mother, or like the safe their base. main attachment with that. I think it's where they have that safe base as a child yeah. so they can go out, explore, but they know that they have that safe base to go back to. Unfortunately, I, I do think that a healthier attachment to the main parental figure, and you know that could be a mother, a father, whatever, really does aid in one's confidence in the future. Yeah, focusing on the, the core principles of psychoanalysis, 
where we do relive infantile discord in our present day. What would your judgment call be on identifying a pattern like this and how to break through it? And if, if we could do this solo or we actually need to kind of call in a professional to do this. Uh, I'll answer that, but I'm curious what you think. Okay. Cool. <laughs> um, to an extent, I do feel that less serious, case, serious cases, taking in love, I do very much believe in love attraction and manifestation. If we are reliving, say, certain experience, well, we come up with the same problems a lot, then I do feel that we have perhaps inherited that from our parents and we are on a deeper vibrational level manifesting that and therefore continuously experiencing it. I think, I don't know, I think if someone is really aware of themselves and has a good, it's, it's really grounded, then I feel like they can address it. Um, but I do, mm-hmm. it's, it's weird, there are two sides of the spectrum. I know people who are amazing, like, they're absolutely amazing, they're so grounded and they really know themselves. And then I see kids mm-hmm. who are so lost and they don't know what to do with their lives mm-hmm. and they hate, I don't know. I mean, how did you find grounding for yourself? How did you, how, were you, how did you become aware of your patterns? I have had it was my father and my mother are very strong in themselves and it was it's almost like I never had that problem of kind of say losing myself in my teenage years or I've always been grounded I don't really worry about too much don't take life too seriously take it as it comes and don't overthink too much so I don't try and overanalyze say patterns um, if anything starts to bug me, then maybe I'll write it down and try, like, I hear, hear people call it an intuition talk, where, say, you experience a block, maybe income or relationship with this person, and then kind of brainstorm and mind map on a piece of paper from there on. Usually I come up with, oh, okay, so that was it. And then once I've addressed it, then the problem usually goes away. <laughs> I really have my parents to thank for that, I mean, though. I- well, it sounds like you did, you always had a good support system. And like, speaking of your teenage years too, like there's a theorist named Eric, Eric Erickson. And like, he says that, um, your teenage years are all about identity versus rule confusion and the successful, um, journey through that time is gaining a sense of identity and once you've done that, you can move on to the next stage. And it sounds like you got that, that support. Yeah. Or you did have a sense of like at that time. Let's see. What was it? I'm trying to think of the question again. So I, can um, I mean, like, I think you're, I mean, I, I, I would agree with however you're doing it. Um, I think the first step is like identifying the pattern. Um, if we don't, we can be like lost in our own anxieties and like avoidance, I think is a form of anxiety, um, or dissociation. Um, I think we can identify the patterns through meditation, through mindfulness, through therapy, um, through a good friend. Although, you know, one of the reasons why I like therapy is that 
I don't necessarily think it's healthy to rely so much on a friend. Like, I don't think your friends need to know everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we break it, break through it through the mindfulness process, through recognition of the pattern. And then by, so let's say there's like, we have a lot of self-hatred and we recognize that we have a lot of self-hatred. Then what do we do from there? then I think it's important to not be so judgmental of that, to, like, accept it and be okay with it. Um, and once we've gotten to that point where we can accept whatever our, our patterns are, then we can slowly build the muscle to change the pattern. That kind of, does that make sense? Yeah. I do feel that that flashback that people experience, the, the guilt, and putting themselves down it just pounds them down into the ground even further and it's just a vicious circle yes and it's but it's it's not just parents it's environmental it's yeah. genetic yeah 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 it's the whole picture oh i think weren't you oh yeah you, you said something like do do i think that psychotherapy is the only way to or seeking professional help is the only way to step outside of the pattern yeah uh, no, I don't think so. I think that spirituality, art making, music making, meditation, um, but something to get something that allows you to get outside of yourself in a way. Uh, that's good news for us. <laughs> Um, and in what way has your career contributed to your belief in sticking to your gut? I mean, I think that I, that's, that's all I'm, I'm, I'm working from really like what I'm doing right now, the art making and the psychotherapy is, um, fulfilling to me. And if I was doing something else that would be counter to, to what I to my, what my gut was telling me. Yeah, and given these premises, has there ever been a time where it was guts versus logic and you went with your gut? Um, yeah, all the time. And, you know, it leads me in all different directions, both positive and negative. And it comes as small as, like, dropping out of graduate school or um, moving cities um leaving relationships do you, um do you have a an immediate an example if you're okay with sharing it can be like really simple or as big of an event of you as you want um doing this interview <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um I don't, Rachel, I don't know if I have, like, a big example. Oh, that's okay. And, oh, before we go on to the last question, I do want to sidestep for a little moment and ask what your spirit animal is. I'd be really interested to hear. (laughs) Um, I think mine is the deer. Um, And some of the characteristics of the deer are close with their family, like, very gentle. They can smell danger from far away and, like, move away from it. I, I also think it's a, be- a beautiful animal. I like 
I hate to say it, but I, I do like beautiful things. But most mostly it's like the genteelness. Um, and then in terms of the ally animals, I've been seeing a lot of birds in my life right now. And birds close to the water. So I, I need to look more into the meaning of that. But Okay. Yeah, birds. Yeah, I'm going to... What do you think your spirit animal is? Oh, wow. Um... <sighs> I've done, like, a few of those really silly little, like, online tests, and there was one that was so weird, where it didn't just say wolf, it was a maned wolf, and then, uh, for the rest, I had an otter, but these are, these are just, like, all little online tests, but now that you've, like, mentioned looking out into your life, I'm definitely gonna start implementing that. I'd love it if it was a horse. <laughs> Aww. Well, I mean, I'm hearing some hurt, some a lot of horse horse analogies in your life right now um but i i would take you i i i i was taught how to lead people on a journey to find their spirit animal so if we ever cross paths in person i'll help i help you with that i love that thank you (laughs) but i do find that deer suits you perfectly i don't know you have the perfect doe eyes as well thank you Also, I like when my my grandmother died. There was a whole pack of deers that came to my house, so that I don't know touched me. um, Yeah, but look at I don't know what kind of animals are there in Amsterdam. Like, gosh, it's just people and their dogs, dog walkers, just dogs everywhere. Dogs. Well, wolves usually are teachers. If that came, I don't know if that rings a bell for you, but that's okay. part of the meaning. Of, yeah, it's fun. I remember I, I visited a friend in Berlin not too long ago, and like some of the rodents there were warthogs and <laughs> weasels uh, and foxes, and I'm like, you know, it couldn't be more different than the animals that are here. So <laughs> yeah. I thought that was funny. Oh, wow. And uh, last but not least, why are you good at what you do? I mean, I think I'm good at what I do because it's coming from a place of, of, of love and care and a little bit of, yes, self, selflessness. And I'm trying to put this into perspective now. My, su- my supervisor, I don't know if you know who Lacan is, but he was a, fr- a famous French psychologist. And he studied um, the Lacan theory. And Lacan said something like, Love is giving what you do not have. And for some reason, I think that applies to what I'm doing. Yeah, I do agree with you on that completely. And just in this interview, I just feel that you're a very warm and loving person. And you made me feel very much at peace. <laughs> oh, well, you're such a sweetheart. I hope I can, I hope I can meet you in the future. I'll be in Paris in May if you're around. Hi, uh, sorry, <laughs> redo. <laughs> uh, this is Kate Rosenberg on Guts and Glory signing off. This was Chic Freud with Kate Rosenberg. Refer to the show notes to further get to know our guest. Share your thoughts and show us some love by subscribing or get in touch to be featured on the podcast. Released every other Monday. Thanks for lending us an ear. Passing on the mic.